and welcome to another edition of Odyssey House Journals. I'm Trip Mitchell, and joined as always by veteran newsman Randall Carlyle, emeritus. Yeah, there you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I work at Odyssey House now. And you have the best job in broadcasting uh, right now. Yes, because it's out of broadcasting. We're going to introduce our guest in a second, but you always say that, and you've had a great career. You started CKLW in Detroit, which was my favorite Windsor, Ontario radio station back in the. Late 60s, early 70s. Had a 40, about a 10-year career in radio and about 40 in TV. So, but you I'm say, an old guy. But you say... <laughs> Do the math. Literally, this is the best job you've had working for Odyssey House. It's, it's, first of all, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so it's a perfect place to work. But in terms of the way people are treated working at Odyssey House and the things that we do makes me feel a lot better about what I do than what I felt in TV or radio. It's just, you know, we're, we, our slogan is we are recovery. And, you know, and, and our program works for a lot of people and other people it doesn't work for. But I don't feel like we're a nonprofit, so I don't feel, I always felt the, even though in radio and TV, as you well know, profit is king prophet is God. And so you're always doing something to improve ratings and things like that. And well, but you're also in broadcasting, you're making people's day when you do the news at night, you know, at 10 o'clock before they go to bed, it kind of ends their day. On sure. a note. You're entertaining, which there's real value. Informing, not entertaining. Oh, excuse yes. me. <laughs> now it's more entertainment. But yeah. In the old days, it was informing. Do you miss it at all? No. I don't. I I still stay. I, I read both newspapers every morning and check out what all four TV stations are doing locally. Uh, so I stay on top of the news. But I don't. On days, I remember we had a snow day recently that was terrible. And I was lying in bed looking out the window thinking, if I would be working in TV news, they would have called me in. And we would have been working all day long, and perhaps I'd be doing a live shot out in a blizzard saying, it's terrible out here, don't, don't drive unless you have to, you know, and, and, and I didn't have to do that. So. Well, that, that's a nice thing. Yeah. So, let's talk about our guest, a very charming, nice man. Yeah, a good buddy of mine, Albert Ochoa, and Albert is a therapist at our intensive outpatient, at our outpatient clinic, uh, but what what I invited Albert to come on for today is he does this wonderful family group every Tuesday night. And, and, and we've been talking on our past podcasts with people who are in recovery. And although Albert's in recovery, he, uh, he, we, we focus on the families of people who are in recovery. And that's something that people don't think about is that if I'm an alcoholic, my wife is going through hell. Uh, if we have a son who's a heroin addict, the whole family's going through hell. And Albert's family group every Tuesday night addresses that issue for family members of people who are in recovery. So maybe, Albert, welcome, first of all. Thank you very we, much. We've taken up way too much time without oh, talking to I'm you. Fascinated. So. I, I know, but it's, it's fun to hear these. Mm-hmm. TV stories are a lot of fun, and, and you can sit around and tell a lot of them. But when it comes to the families, they go through hell when a member of their family is an addict. It is not an insular thing. Talk about what got you into this and how 
helping the families makes your job so wonderful? That's a good question. Really, what I believe my, my feeling is, is that addiction is a family disease. It is not limited to the person who is suffering or taking the drugs and alcohol. It really, really permeates the entire family. And if that is the case, then if someone is going to really, truly experience recovery, get recovery, stay in recovery, the family needs to get clean and sober too. Have you ever seen an instance where uh, someone can truly isolate being an addict and not affect their family? No. <laughs> okay. So that, that is a... Just the, just the mere... Being, so in my case, yeah. I thought I was hiding my drinking from everyone. Mm-hmm. And that proved to be... The only person I was hiding it from was my garbage man. <laughs> I didn't want him yeah. to know. Well, but he probably found I, the bottles, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So it is never limiting. It's, it's always an all-encompassing disease. It is, yes. Yeah. There, I've sat in several of his groups and maybe go over some of the topics that you, that you deal with some of the parents and, or, or loved ones or significant others of, of people who are in addiction. You know, it, it, it's heartbreaking for me. Yes, I'm in recovery and dealing with the families, the loved ones of people you know, that are um, affected by addiction. It's always painful for me when I have a family walk in or a wife walk in or a loved one walk in and one of the first things they say is, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Uh, and immediately going into, okay, this you didn't do anything wrong. That would be similar to a, a parent of a son or daughter who has cancer. What did we do wrong? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very the similar. The answer is nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes there are things that, were, that are done that are not helpful. That gets into the codependency and all of that. But uh, many parents, loved ones, think that you know, had I given them oatmeal on Tuesday instead of Cheerios, maybe that would have made the difference. Uh, it isn't any of those things. Where the family, loved ones really, really uh, get into trouble or, or a part of the problem is, is that they, they think, I'll take care of my child, I'll take care of my loved one, I'll call in for work, I'll clean them up when they throw all over the, up themselves, uh, I'll do all of these things when really what they need to do is just leave them alone and let them figure it out. And that has to be the hardest thing to do as a parent or as a sibling or um, husband or wife. Mm, Yeah, because you know, the natural tendency is to, is to rescue, to save, to be there. Uh, And those are, uh, what I've heard in meetings is that everything that I was doing was part of the problem. Yeah. So letting that person that you love and care about hit rock bottom, got to be incredibly hard. It is hard, but it's not as painful as continuing to watch somebody uh, stay in addiction. And again, part of hitting bottom is is that you know the the loved one, the family member, whomever, have to begin to uh, find their own form of recovery. And part of that recovery is to detach with love and say, okay, I love you, I care about you, but you need to figure this out. And when you do, uh, you're more than welcome to come back into the family. That's a hard thing to do, to, to detach with love. And, and setting boundaries in the mm-hmm. family, especially yeah. when the person in addiction is living in the home. You, you deal with those. I, I hear the families talking about that all the time. Well, uh, my, my son steals from me. Mm-hmm. What do I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and addicts frequently do that. 
interesting. My son steals from me. What do I do? Well, under any other case, you would call the police. Same thing. You know? But they don't call the police because they think they are uh, taking care of. They're fixing. They're rescuing. And Albert, interestingly enough, we had a guest from your program a couple weeks ago who's finally it took his mom turning him in for stealing or bouncing a check. And, and that right. was what led to being in jail, which led to recovery to an amazing 15-year career of helping people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is a hard lesson. Now, there are some other Al-Anon, there's some other groups out there that, that work with families. How much do you, when you're coming up with a program at Odyssey House, how much do you look at that, and how do you create a program? Uh, by uh, listening to what the needs of the, the people in the group are. Um, you know, uh, we borrow a little bit from Al-Anon, but there's a big difference between Al-Anon and what we do. Al-Anon really doesn't allow much crosstalk in a meeting, uh, whereas what we, we do a lot of uh, sharing ideas and processing. So that's one of the big differences. Um, being there for the new person coming in, we were having a great conversation last night yeah. in group about... Uh, Maybe taking a look at how we're approaching new people that come in, because all of a sudden they came, come in and they're bombarded with a ton of information. And sometimes it's very helpful, and sometimes you know they they can come back and they can get through it. And then, but sometimes I think it's more than they can deal with. Drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Yeah. Veterans in the group have already set their boundaries and have accepted the fact that one of their loved ones is in recovery or in addiction and or whatever and, and dealing with it, dealing with issues like, well, I've heard several people and, and, and the other people in the room come down on them saying, well, I was planning a vacation to go here, but I'm not going because my, I don't know where my son is who's a heroin addict and I'm afraid he might die while I'm gone. Yeah. And then, and then the other the other people in the room chime chime in and say, "What you know? What what difference are you going to make if your son is going to overdose on heroin because he doesn't live at home? He's out on the street. So why not? You need to take care of yourself and you need to go on vacation. And that's the kind of exchange that goes on in this group. And probably hard to hear that if sure. you're a super caring. Yes, it is hard to hear, but it is a part of what the answer is. Uh, we talk about, uh, you know, the, the addict alcoholic taking the family hostage and many people not going on vacation because I need to be there. That's part of the problem that is feeding into the addiction. Of so the, the aeronautics equivalent is as a parent, you've got your child next to you, the masks come down. Get yourself in good shape yeah. so you can take oh. care of your kid. Oh, yes. It's like uh, one of the things that, you know, I like is that. Recovery is like planting a tree. You take the tree and you dig it up from foul soil, you know, the addiction, the uh, all of that, and you replant it in healthy soil. If you don't do that, healthy soil being recovery, recovery of the family, recover, recovery of the individual, because if you just plant that tree back into the same soil, it's very unlikely that it will survive. So, Albert... Your thinking is is that probably no family of an addict gets by unscathed, and so that everyone could benefit from meeting some people, dealing with a group that can talk things through. Sure. 
Uh, if nothing else, when somebody walks in and maybe comes to only one group or whatever, uh, and the people that end up staying, like my friend here, uh, <laughs> is that you're not alone. And that's one thing that people that uh, are dealing with the addict alcoholic feel. Nobody else will understand. Nobody else will accept. The stigma of being involved with an addict and alcoholic is amazing. Uh, and our message, my message is, you're not alone. You're in a room with people that understand and can help. And you're not a failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not, it, it, it wasn't you that caused this to happen. There may be some things we need to fix within the house for when we replant the tree. Sure. But, but it's not your fault. You but know. Randall, in this town, it must be very difficult because the predominant faith, the Mormon church, <laughs> yeah. is not a, is a faith that doesn't believe in no drugs or alcohol or coffee and that sort of thing. And when someone becomes an addict as a parent, it's got to be even more stressful. Well, again, we were having this conversation last night and that I believe that oftentimes the loved one of the addict alcoholic don't walk through the doors because there is so much shame on the part of the loved one of the addict alcoholic and... Uh, and judgment, too. Judgment. And it, in this culture, it is my belief that that is also exacerbated because... We don't talk, as far as I know, the church doesn't really talk much about uh, addiction. Now, I know that LDS does have 12-step groups. Sure, they so have, they, there's yeah. an AA program within the LDS church. Yeah, uh, but for the most part, there's so much shame around addiction that uh, people don't talk about it. We were discussing last night that oftentimes the loved one of the addict alcoholic will uh, get their child, their loved one, to the doors, get them into treatment, and then they back off. They fix it. your problem. Yeah, fix it. Yes, <laughs> fix it. Call me when it's done. Uh, and uh, Last time I checked, Albert, it doesn't work that way, does no, it? No, it doesn't work that way. And that's part of the problem, too. So, Do you feel that given if a, a family is going to work hard, coming and, and, and really deal with things that, it's easier to fix a family, or is it easier to fix an addict? In my opinion, it's easier to fix the addict. And wow. I don't like using the word fix. Well, that, yeah, I, that was horrible get, usage well, in my case. No, yeah. But you get them into recovery, okay? Yeah. But then uh, primarily I work, much of my job, uh, the time in the week, is spent with the addict alcoholic. I don't spend as much time with the family. I would love to do that. I'd love, love to be able to just focus in that area. But... Uh, there's a lot of denial on both sides, with the addict, alcohol, addict alcoholic and with the family. And sometimes it's easier for me, because I'm in recovery, to break through that denial with the addict alcoholic, where it is not as easy for the family member to actually hear it. Uh, again, what did I do wrong? It must be my fault. Well, and especially in the predominant culture where, you know, you can be great parents and you have five sons and daughters, no alcohol issues, no drugs issue, and then one child has it, that's got to be really tough for a parent. It is tough, and I mean, you have to look back. You wanted to say something. But, no, go uh, I believe that uh, addiction is a, a disease. As do many caregivers. Right, and so um, not every child of, in a family, if someone comes down with cancer, 
not every person in that family gets cancer. It does skip people, but it is a disease, and I believe it needs to be treated as a disease. So. And Randall, in your case, did you have any brothers and sisters who had alcohol? Or? No, uh, no. Uh, no. Alcoholism runs on the paternal side of my family back four generations that I know of. Um, so, and I think there is, I, I think there's a, a genetic disposition uh, to become an alcoholic or an addict. And I think I probably got that gene because my brother and sister drink socially and that's it. And I'd love to be able to drink socially, <laughs> but I can't, you know, so, but my mom is still alive and she knew about the genetic predisposition in our family and, and now that I'm sober and we can talk about it, uh, she said, if back when you were 13 or 14 and you started drinking and we caught you drinking, if I would have told you that, listen, Randall, it runs in our family, and if you keep drinking, there's a really good chance you could become an alcoholic. Would that have stopped you from drinking? And the answer is probably no. No, of course yeah. not. I said, that's not going to be me because the, the, peop- the, the alcoholics are those bums that you see sitting on the street with a brown paper bag. They're, it's not going to be me, you know. And so, Albert, tell us about your story. <clears throat> um, I come from a long line of uh, alcoholics. Uh, my mother was uh, heavy into her disease. And for me, I, was, I believe I was an alcoholic before I ever took my first drink. Because Explain when I, that. Yeah, that's... Well, when I did take my first drink, I blacked out on my first Really? First time, oh, yeah. And wow. blacking out is uh, one of the characteristics of, yeah. uh, you know. And for our viewers, blackout is essentially where you don't remember what you did. But you're still functioning. You yeah. just don't remember. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're, you could have driven home. You could not know where your car is. You could have been abusive. You could have gotten in an accident and mm-hmm. killed someone. No recollection whatsoever. And that is a scary, scary part. Mm-hmm. And, um, again, that's my my stepping into my own addiction. You know, from that point, I was... How old were you when you took... Oh, I was 14. So yeah. you don't find a lot of blackout drunks at 14? Well, I think there are more than you would know. <laughs> Could okay. be. Could be. So. And where did you grow up? Uh, San Francisco. Okay. And so kind of take what was the arc of your alcohol and, and when did you quit? So 14 was your first blackout. Yeah. I continued... And first drink. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I continued to drink and then I started experimenting with other drugs, LSD, pot, all of that. But eventually, I, or I would always go back to the alcohol. It was just uh, easier... Uh, it was legal, uh, and I my career of abuse really lasted um, maybe fifteen years, and it was great because the first you know, seven eight years that I drank, I was the person everyone wanted to be around. I was the person dancing on the table with the lampshade on my head and all that good stuff. The second half of my career of drinking, I became the person no one wanted to be around because I was depressed. I was uh, violent, I was moody, uh, and I was famous for giving dinner parties, inviting people over, starting to drink, and then halfway through go in and pass out in, you know, in my bedroom, and people would finish the meal. Did they do the dishes? Uh, I think so, yeah. yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, but uh, it happened fast for me, yeah. and alcohol turned me into the person 
the first, you know, five, six, seven, eight years that I drink turned me into the person that I always wanted to be. It was that liquid courage. It did give me the ability to do all the things that I thought I couldn't do. I was very shy. I had no belief in myself, all of that lack of self-esteem. But again, the second uh, part of my drinking, uh, I turned into the person that I never wanted to be. What stopped? What was your moment? I uh, was living with some people in San Francisco. Uh, and, you know, it, it all started to fall apart. Uh, you know, uh, money-wise, they were paying me to do the rent and do the phone and do all of that. And what I would do is I'd take the money and drink it and then have to find a way to, you know, steal from Peter to pay Paul to pay the rent to, you know, get the landlord off my back. And, I, and it was just the weight of trying to carry all of that. And eventually, uh, the people that I was living with uh, confronted me one morning and said, uh, you know, we know that none of the bills are getting paid, and if you don't figure this out uh, by this evening, you know, we're going to have to ask you to leave. So before they could ask me to leave, I got up, packed a suitcase, and left myself. Got on a bus. This is uh, August 3rd, 1982. Yes, I do remember it well. <laughs> uh, and I got on a Greyhound bus and uh, went from San Francisco to Bakersfield, California, in the clothes I had been wearing for three or four days. And got off the bus and went, what the hell am I doing here? Problem was is that I couldn't go back. No one wanted me back. We were talking about that too. I think it was the, the absolute uh, feeling of like, there is no one who wants me. Why did you end up in Bakersfield? Because I had worked with a couple of people uh, in San Francisco that moved to Bakersfield. And so I just called them up and said, guess what? I'm going to come to your house and visit. <laughs> and here's my suitcase. So, and it just, it just got worse and worse and worse. I, the last year that I drank, I had eight jobs. Uh, and uh, I was constantly doing this. If I could stop drinking, I would become a good person. I always thought that what I was was a bad person trying to become good. And if I could stop drinking, I could become good. What I didn't understand, what took me a while to really come to terms with, was what I was was a sick person trying to become well. And for me, that was uh, when I began to be able to see that there was an answer. Uh, and did you go into treatment, or did you? I did not do treatment. I uh, got into twelve step. Not blowing any anonymity there. No, <laughs> but here, here's the thing. But, it, by but, the way, the most famous twelve step program is Alcoholics Anonymous. But I won't draw a conclusion there. Okay. But don't, don't draw any conclusions. Yes. yes. One of the interesting expressions in the twelve step community is you don't have. You don't have to take the elevator all the way down to the bottom. You can choose to get off on the second floor, third. You do not. And there's a wonderful little uh, AA riddle I love. How do you know when you've hit bottom? When you decide to stop digging. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And that's good. That, that yeah. is so true. So in your case, you went into a 12-step program in Bakersfield, California. Oh, yeah, with the good old boys. And Bakersfield's a rough town. Oh, yeah. It is not a town, a town for the faint of heart, as it were. That being said, did you immediately, did it, did it hit you? We talk about in addiction, the pink cloud, where a couple months in, you just happiness you hadn't experienced ever. Uh, not everyone experiences the pink cloud. I did, because I was in such pain 
physically, emotionally, spiritually, by the time I hit those doors, uh, anything was better than what I had experienced. Uh, so I spent, for me, it was much easier because I spent a good deal of time on that pink cloud. And I was also introduced to some major people in my life that uh, really guided me, you know, uh, you know, sponsored me, uh, gave me their wisdom, their experience, strength, and hope. So uh, it was good. One of the things, Albert and Randall, I love about Odyssey House is that regardless in the Odyssey House family, as it were, the people that do the counseling are all addicts. So it's not a situation, or by and large, you're an addict. <coughs> by and large. Yeah, and so it's not... It's not a requirement. <laughs> but having been there, you are so much more relatable. Yeah. I'd like to you know address that too, because this is important to me. Because not all addicts and alcoholics make good therapists. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, there are many that I've met in my experience that I wouldn't want listen yeah. to anyone. And some of the best therapists that I've met are people who are not in addiction. You don't have to be an addict alcoholic to really, really, you know, wrap yourself in that need for empathy and providing empathy and all of that. Uh, last week. Uh, you know, some of the people in the, the group talking about, well, I don't know what it really feels like to be an addict alcoholic. So I said, okay, let's do this. Uh, what is your favorite little, uh, you know, uh, food or thing that you like? And many people would say, oh my, you know, I just love chocolate. And I yeah. say, okay, what I want you to do is I want you, I'm going to show you what it feels like to be an addict alcoholic. For one month, you do not eat chocolate. And it was like, oh, I can't do that. I mean, you know, that's what it, uh, that's, that's getting close to what it feels like. But multiply that by 10. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Because true addiction is, it's physical, it's mental, it's, it's the whole kit and caboodle. And what you said is true. A lot, an awful lot of the people who work at Odyssey House are in recovery. Uh, and that empathy and, and that ability to deal with people and not, the last thing as an addict that, in my experience, you need to do is be preached to. Oh, the, that is the thing that will cause. But having walked the, that walk and talked that talk, you can talk to people and relate to what they're going through because it's hell. Sure. One of the things that I really understand as a, a person in recovery is do not tell me what I have to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because I, by nature, I'll just rebel. And so when I'm dealing with clients... Because it's strong-willed people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, and you have to have a strong will to survive, you know, addiction. Keep drinking, doing drugs every day. Yeah. I mean, that takes that's hard work. Yeah, it is, actually, yeah. <laughs> and I, I was joking with some friends. I suspected on Monday we had President's Day holiday and the liquor stores were closed. And I suspected they'd be out in Wendover. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was tongue-in-cheek. But you've got to be an alcoholic, as you just mentioned, there's... You don't do it by mistake. You have to work at it. Oh. And some of the things that people do are ridiculous. You know, alternating liquor stores every other day. And so the people in the liquor store don't know they're an addict. I mean, which is ludicrous, but the alcoholic mind. Yeah, I was uh, just, somebody was just telling me about, I don't think it was in group. There was, there was a family, and in their ha house they had the little cameras and stuff. And one day when they were looking at the, the footage on the, you know, of the cameras, what they found was one of their neighbors from down the street snuck into their house and hit the bar. Really? Yeah. 
<laughs> and then snuck out the window. I mean, that tells you how far people are willing to go to sure. get you know get the sure. drug. Yeah, this is not during prohibition. He could no. go down to a store <laughs> and find it. Yeah, yeah. But that that people will do crazy things. Yeah. And so in your case, you had a real successful. You got into a twelve step program in Bakersfield. How did you get to Salt Lake working with addicts here? Uh, I was actually raised in Salt Lake from age one to seven. Okay. At seven years old, my family moved to San Francisco. Uh, when I got to Bakersfield, uh, my geographic, my mother passed away in eighty ninety two, and I started seeing a therapist as well as doing twelve step, and I spent about four and a half years with her. And finally, she said, I can't do anything else for you. What you need to do is go back to Salt Lake, and you need to take everything back. Because uh, I had uh, vowed, because of the kind of life that I had lived here, to never, ever step foot in Utah again. <laughs> and I spent almost 35 years outside of the state. And, you know, my family began to die, and I thought, well, got to do something. And it, it changed, didn't it? it? It changed, and I changed. You were a different person. Yeah. I was ready. I was really ready. And moving back here uh, was one of the best things I could have ever done for myself. And how did you get connected with the Odyssey House family? Uh, I decided... I had a career before this. I was in restaurants, and I did that for some 20, 30 years. Loved it. And one day I was working at a very posh restaurant down in uh, downtown the Metropolitan as a manager and it was in December and I went out back and I thought to myself I can't do this anymore I absolutely cannot do this kind of work anymore I have no passion for it uh, I don't care how you want your steak don't bug me and so I thought okay those I'll... are not printed on the napkin no 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 and so uh, it was at that moment I went I've got to choose something else and so standing out back at this restaurant I thought what are you passionate about? What is going to get you through, you know, the rest of your life? And so it kind of went, recovery, that's what I'm passionate about. So I went upstairs, I called the U, uh, you know, looked into their program, uh, got involved with several other agencies, Voc Rehab, uh, they paid tuition for me, all of that. It was great. And it was because of these things uh, I got into Odyssey House. I did my practicum there at Odyssey House and I got hired. Well, that's fantastic. So it kind of goes to what we were talking to Randall about earlier, how this is the best job you've ever had. And that's really interesting. And so every day you know when you wake up you're going to be helping people. Every day that I wake up, I pray that I can be of service to others. Talk about that difference. Uh, because for me, uh, it's for me. It's real easy to slip into thinking I know what the answer is because of my experience. And when I think I know what but the answer is. But you do most of the time know the answer. For me. Okay. Okay. And what I share with others is my experience, strength, and hope. Now, what I have found is, is that usually is the thing that, that works. And I've been very fortunate in working with people and having a lot of people get clean and sober and staying clean and sober. But the minute that I think I know what I'm doing, I'm getting into trouble for me. But that's part of the 12-step program. I've watched Albert in action, and an awful lot of his clients love him. Uh, and it's not because he imparts to them how he thinks people should get sober. It's that he 
gets them to figure out how they can get sober and stay sober. And he's very good at that. Well, so. you, not to give you too many compliments here, but you have such a easy, nice manner. That helps. That really does. Because when people come into a program, you're terrified. And someone who's comforting and, and let them know that, A, it's going to be a lot of hard work. This isn't going to be easy, but that it is attainable. That's a wonderful message. I'm, you know, I'm blessed. I'm fortunate uh, to be doing the work that I'm doing. You know, fortunate to have met uh, this this man. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised we didn't meet at the Metropolitan. In my drinking <laughs> days, I went down there. I was making good money, and I was down at the restaurant all the time. Oh, substance abuse in restaurants. Don't even want to go there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, it's <clears throat> interesting. And, and there's a very famous television personality who was in the restaurant business who took his own life. And in his first book, um, you know, you read about that industry is full of cocaine and alcohol and marijuana. And I, Whenever I did cocaine, I bought all my cocaine from somebody working at one of the downtown restaurants. Uh, but you never did it on air? Oh, no, no. I was always sober on air. I was a functioning alcoholic. And the only reason I did cocaine was so I could drink more because I thought it made me more alert and... I could speak more clearly and didn't slur my words. And you got more words in in less time. There you know. <laughs> but I should. Everybody always asks that when, when I say I was a functional alcoholic, they say you didn't look drunk on the air. I say that's because I wasn't. You know, I I had a perfect shift for a functional alcoholic. I came into work at two in the afternoon, got done at ten thirty, gave me plenty of time to go to bars, stay out as late as I wanted, and sleep till noon the next day, and, and go to and work sober. As an anchorman in this market, you probably got a pass for a lot of things. As I well. did, I did, and, and and they tried to. I remember back in the day, they tried to keep me out of back when we had private clubs, and I had one general manager who said, "You're hanging around clubs all the time, getting drunk and picking up women," and and I said, and he said, "You got to stop doing that," and I said, "Well, the people who are going to judge me for doing that." are people who wouldn't be in the club in the first place or wouldn't let anybody else know that they were in the club in the first place. And the people who are in the club and admit that they're going to the club, they're not going to be upset watching me on TV knowing I was at the club last night. So I've got it covered. And what did the general manager say? Well, he, he couldn't argue with that. I mean, he, <laughs> you know, there, there was some truth to that, too, back in the day. So Yeah. Well, it, certain industries are rife for alcohol and drug abuse. and restaurants, entertainment, movie mm. business. It, yeah. Yeah. It's a tough industry. So now when you get a chance to work with families, what, how do timing goes? Is, is, it, is there a set time? Do people just need to commit to a program where they're going to meet, go to meetings once a week? Kind of talk to some of our viewers through what they're going to get into. Well, for those people that end up coming through the doors and uh, understanding that the solution is there for them. Uh, we have people in the group that have been there three, four years. Uh, it's, they come back not, not because they have to, they come back because they want to. Uh, it is a, a form of a connection. It is where they can go and say, you know, I'm having a problem. You know, my kid is acting up again. I don't know what to do. Um, and it's really, really about the processing. It's about constantly checking and saying, where am I at? What problems am I, you know, experiencing? And the fact that we, it's real easy to slip back into 
old behaviors as the loved one of the addict alcoholic. And those old behaviors are part of what makes the problem worse. So, This is a unique program. For, I'm going to do a little push here. This is the card we, we put out for a family group. You can't see that with the camera, I'm sure. But the unique thing about this is they meet once a week, uh, and you don't have to be an Odyssey client. You don't have to have a, a loved one in the Odyssey program. Anybody, anybody can come in, and it's only five bucks a session for six to eight o'clock on Tuesday nights. Now, you can't go anywhere uh, and, and have a significant group with an expert group therapist for $5 for two hours. Uh, I'll do the math. <clears throat> That's less than $5 per hour. Yes, it is. How about that for yeah. intellect? You're brilliant. Yeah, I, maybe two fifty an hour. I, yeah, something yeah, like let's, that. Let's let's yeah. not get into specifics. Yeah. You know, math is but very interpretive. And, and it's it's something that it's not really well known in the community. I don't think, and we're going to try to push it a little more because it's. Uh, I mean, I I've gone because I was uh, because I was dating a woman who had a. A, a, a relative, a loved one who was in addiction, and 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 I was fighting with this woman all the time over over this person's loved one, and I went because I needed help from just I needed process, suggestions. Yeah. I said, "Here's the problem: we are. I'll say your your loved one is is causing hell in our in our life. Uh, you need to crack down on on this person." And and then I would argue, and my girlfriend, since it was a loved one, would be defensive of the person who was in addiction, and we'd fight all the time. And it had nothing to do with us; it had to do with this loved one. And so that was one of the one of the first reasons I went myself to get help at Albert's group, and they offered me a lot of good advice. Well, that's great, and you'll see a number at the bottom of the screen right now to call Odyssey House if you're having some issues, if you've got a loved one, if you just want a connection, and connection is so important in this situation. Albert, I'm sorry I interrupted you. Oh, uh, that's really very, very common in the whole dynamic of addiction, that the mother, father, brother, sister, whatever, are at odds with each other. Uh, that's a really, really big problem, and uh, I've seen the struggle that couples have in coming to terms with, you know, the mother wants to be loving and caring and just put a blanket over the person and the father is saying, you know, no, kick the bum out. And so and that it, just causes strife. Uh, and I've yeah. seen them arguing in his groups over that too and admitting that that, that, that was driving them apart because one, one or the other was saying, call the cops, throw them out. And the other person was saying, oh, I can't do that. I love this person. How can we do that to the person we love? And that's what this group is all about. And it's interesting to see, I've seen them over a period of a year and a half or so, of the, the couple that was arguing over that whole thing, now they're together. And when um, they're united front, it makes yeah, it so much easier. Oh, yeah. And that's about their recovery then, not about the loved one's recovery. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if I may, I was just having a thought. One of the differences between, I believe, in what we're doing and other programs is that I do make it a point whenever possible to make sure that the people involved in the family support group are being, a, being able to get involved and mingle with the clients, uh, inviting them to, uh, you know, functions, 
you know, we invited, the, the, it was wonderful this last Thanksgiving, uh, the people in the family support group uh, cooked all the turkeys. Right, for Thanksgiving. For Thanksgiving yeah. for the people in what we call the house. And uh, they got to uh, be involved with the dinner. It gives them the opportunity, wow, to ask someone else, why did you do this? I mean, uh, give me some insight as to, you know, how my child is thinking. Uh, it gives them uh, unfiltered uh, access to, you know, ask questions. That's fantastic. You'll bring somebody in. I remember a couple of weeks, you bring somebody in who was in our program, not not the family group, but in our, in in our recovery program, who had relapsed, and would sit and and sat there and said to the parents who have all seen their kids relapse a million times, this is this is what I did. This is how I relapsed. And then let the parents question him, which is sort of sort of neat because it's not their kid; it's somebody who relapsed and say and, and get real gutsy with them, saying, "What, what was going through your head? Why did you do this? You were successful up to this point. What's going?" And it and it gives them a greater understanding of of how to deal with their own kids' relapses, you know. And and then going back for me talking to the people in the house from the program, what was the experience like for you? Uh, oftentimes they'll say, ooh, I felt a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, people being pissed off because in many ways they're you know, able to say to, the, to that kid, right. you know, what the hell were you thinking? Why yeah. did you do that? You know, and, and it's therapeutic in that way. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> this thing doesn't make sense. Well, Albert, thank you so much for coming in. My this pleasure. has been a very fast 45 minutes and you bring so much to the recovery community. And I can tell that you're a very valuable member of the Odyssey House team. And thanks you, for being a beloved member by all of us. So well, that ain't bad. Because I didn't, I didn't, you know, obviously when I came into Odyssey, I didn't know anybody else who was working there. And when somebody, we talked about the outpatient program and my immediate boss said, have you met Albert yet? And I said, no. And my boss said, you got to meet him. He's he, we we all love him. He's great. So well, fantastic. You are Thank you, you so are much. loved. And you know what's I think the biggest gift living in recovery is today I can accept that. That's right. When I was in my disease, I had no idea what that meant. Well, we have a number at the bottom of the screen. Please give it a call if you have any questions about addiction or how addiction affects you as a parent, loved one. Please call if you have a problem yourself. Please call. Yeah, Even if, if you want to go to Albert's group. Yeah. I mean, and what day of the week is that? Uh, it's Tuesday evenings from 6 to 8. And which Odyssey House campus is it? Presently, we're at uh, the Intensive Outpatient, which is on uh, 3rd East and 2100 South. Uh, that may change. We may find a place that has a little more parking, but we're not there yet. But at least for th through the beginning of uh, March, We'll be uh, having meetings there Tuesday nights. Great, and $5 and a chance to be around a community of people <laughs> yeah. doing the same thing. And, and I'm going to pull out my abacus and determine how much that is an hour, but I think it's pretty inexpensive. <laughs> Randall, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it as always. You've been watching Odyssey House Journals. My name's Trip Mitchell. We'll see you next time, and thanks for watching.